In, uh, in the same spirit of what we just heard our students share, uh, we're going to be looking at a famous passage out of Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. So this is Luke 10, uh, 10 25 to 42. Now an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you understand it? The expert answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But the expert, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him up, and went off, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, but when he saw the injured man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came up to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was traveling, came to where the injured man was, and when he saw him, he felt compassion for him. He went up to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring olive oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever else you spend, I will repay you when I come back this way. Now which of these three do you think became a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in religious law said, The one who showed mercy to him. So Jesus said to him, <clears throat> Go and do the same. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him as a guest. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he said. But Martha was distracted with all the preparations she had to make. So she came up to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. Mary has chosen the best part. It will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, would you speak to us about your word? Lord, every day in so many ways, I am like the expert in the law, thinking I have the right answers, but also wanting to explain 
why my life justifies me before you, why my choices and my fears are okay. Lord, in so many ways each day, I'm like Martha, trying to be busy for you instead of being with you. Lord, I, I ask that you would allow each of us to see ourselves in these characters and to hear your words. Lord, let us see the story of the Good Samaritan in a new way today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I love the Lord's timing that we get to talk about this story about loving our neighbor, especially when it's messy, uh, right after hearing from our students who have had this experience and have been face-to-face -face with their neighbors and have become neighbors to people that they never expected to be neighbors to. The question that sparks that whole story is an interesting question. The expert in the law is asking Jesus, what must I do to inherit or receive or claim eternal life? And Jesus turns it back on him. He knows this guy has studied scripture. He's an expert. He's a teacher. And so he says, well, what do you think? What's the answer? And the guy has a, an answer ready, and he gives what we know of as the greatest commandment, the two commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. In the other gospels, Jesus is the one who gives that answer. It's interesting that in Luke's telling of it, we find that answer on another's tongue, coming to Jesus, but Jesus then affirms his answer. The question here is not what the greatest commandment is. That's what's asked in the other gospels, probably in another scene when Jesus is in Jerusalem. The question from the expert in the law is what kind of behavior will yield an eternal reward? What do we have to do to get eternity, eternal life with God? And Jesus agrees with this answer. When, when he gives the answer, Jesus says, yep, that's it. Do this and you will live. And he doesn't just mean, you know, be alive tomorrow. He means you will live in eternity. But wait, I've got a question for you experienced Christians here in the room. Uh, if someone asked you, what must I do to inherit eternal life? your answer probably wouldn't be behaviors. If you've been, you know, with a church like this for any amount of time, you probably wouldn't answer with some steps for how to be a good person, how to love properly. Right? I'm guessing your answer would be something along the lines of, that famous verse in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We are children of the Protestant Reformation, you know, grace alone through faith alone. That's the bell that we ring all the time. So 
Love the Lord your God with every part of you. Love your neighbors yourself on this side. Uh, you know, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart on this side. These things sound like two different things, don't they? Well, remember, Jesus has not come to abolish the law. He's come to fulfill it. In Romans, Paul will write just a couple chapters later that the commandments can be summed up in this simple line, love your neighbor as yourself. Same idea. In fact, after answering the question correctly, we get an incredible clue about what's going on in this scene in verse 29. Look at the way Luke describes the next question the expert in the law is going to ask. He, he tells us about the intentions of the expert. Look, he says, the expert wanting to justify himself said, and then his question is, but who is my neighbor? He wants to justify himself. That word, justify, it is a theology word. It is a word that, that uh, Jews and early believers were fixated on. What does it mean to be justified before God? It, it could be translated vindicate or prove yourself to be righteous. He wants to prove that he is righteous, that he has done enough to inherit eternal life. The expert in the law knows what he should do. He knows the answer to the question. Now he wants to make a case that he has done it and that he can do it. And if you really dig into the, the New Testament, all of the letters, the stories, you will find that the lines get awfully blurry between the theology of justification, the idea of salvation, the idea of eternal life, these things all sort of overlap. They get blurry. They are different angles from which we can look at the glorious diamond of the gospel. Okay, so is love God and love people required for eternal life? I wonder if we should instead be asking, what would I want the eternal life offered? No, would I want the eternal life offered in scripture if I did not love God or people? Like, would I really want what eternal life is if I didn't love God? I think that God in his mercy gives us exactly what we want in eternity. If my desire is to love him and to love people, He'll lead me there. Faith, following Jesus, is in fact the act of loving him and taking his love into our lives. That's what it is. That orients us to God and to other people. Loving God and loving people are inheriting eternal life here and now. That's what Jesus is saying. What must I do to inherit eternal life? When the guy gives this answer, he is saying, you can live the eternal joy right now. Let me say it differently. Perfect obedience to these two commandments is righteousness. It is the justified life. This is the state, the focus, the direction, the behavior for which you and I were made. This is what it is. Righteousness is right relationships with God and people. 
If someone could perfectly obey the two great commandments, they would indeed inherit eternal life, not only in this age, but in the age to come. The law would be fulfilled. They would be, in fact, living the joyful kingdom wherever they were. So to perfectly obey these two commands, we need to ask the same question as the expert. Who is my neighbor? How do I actually do this? Who is my neighbor? And we need to hear Jesus' answer with all of its shock and awe. I want to give you a bit of context here in the Gospel of Luke. Samaritans have come up recently. Just in the last chapter, they're traveling along. They're making their way to Jerusalem, and they stop in a Samaritan village. And they would like to stay there. They would like lodgings. They would, you know, they need to rest and refresh. They're probably going to tell them, hey, this guy's the Messiah. We're headed to Jerusalem. But as soon as the Samaritan village learns that these guys are headed to Jerusalem, they say, no vacancy. You can't stay here. Like, we, we don't like Jerusalem. They don't like us. We're, we're trying to be faithful to God in our own way, but they've cut us off from them. They're our enemies. And so even Jesus, two of Jesus' disciples say, should we call down fire from heaven and destroy this village? That's how quick they are to want to destroy Samaritans. Guys, Samaritans are a unique kind of enemies. They're not the Romans. They're not subduing the Jewish people, the Israelites. They're not at war with them. They're kind of like people... This isn't even that great of, a, of an analogy because it's not quite extreme enough. But if you take just ultra, hyper, total, like far right, far, far right conservatives and ultra, hyper, far, far left liberals, if you take people, you know, like completely left and completely right, you know, people who call each other, you know, communists and fascists, you know, that's the kind of names that they use. And, and these two groups on the far extremes would rather that perhaps the other group just be eliminated from the face of the earth. That gives you a little sense of how Samaritans and, and the rest of the Israelites think of each other. I mean, it is disturbing and disgusting to any Jewish person that Jesus would tell this story this way. This is a family viewed and it has been going on for a long time. In American history, this famous parable of Jesus has taken on another layer of importance for us because it found its way into the last speech that Martin Luther King Jr. gave. The night before he was assassinated, he was giving this incredible speech talking about, you know, partnering with the sanitation workers in Memphis. They're about to have this march. And King called upon his listeners to develop what he called a dangerous unselfishness. Now, King and his wife had recently visited Israel and they had rented a car and journeyed from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he explains in that sermon, and Aaron and I recently saw it in March, Jerusalem is about 2,200 feet in elevation. Jericho is down below sea level, 1,200 feet below sea level. And it's just a few miles 
from one to the other, and in the day, the road from one to the other is a steep and dangerous road. Martin Luther King says, yeah, a lot of times when you hear this sermon, this uh, passage preached, it will be about people going on to their religious duties. You know, the, the Levite and the priest, they're too busy with their religion to notice the guy. And he says, having been on that road, he doesn't think that that's actually what was going on. His idea about this passage for why the priest and the Levite passed by is that fear stopped them. This was a dangerous road. Robbers were obviously there. They had gotten the first traveler, and this guy could be faking. He could be dangerous. And so the Levite and the priest, King says, are asking the question, if, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? We need to listen carefully to King's prophetic clarity. The Samaritan did not ask that question. He asked, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? You've probably heard that before. I mean, this, I, I, like, I'm playing the hits from sort of American Christianity right now, but friends, we have to hear that again. Maybe we can hear it in, in a new voice. Uh, French philosopher Paul Ricoeur sums it up nicely. He says, Jesus is not here giving us a sociological study of neighboring. He is showing forcefully that one does not have a neighbor. On the next slide, one does not have a neighbor. I make myself one's neighbor. I wonder, you know, since we've been going through the whole Gospel of Luke, I wonder if this expert in the law has been tracking with Jesus, has been following the things that Jesus has been teaching, because Jesus' teachings have been radical. They have been disturbing. And I've been banging this drum week after week. I think the centerpiece of Jesus' ethical teaching is love your enemy. Do good to those who curse you. Bless, or bless those who curse you. Do good to those who persecute you. Give to those from whom you don't expect anything in return. Love your enemy. That's what Jesus has been teaching. That's his central command. It's come in several different ways. I mean, this is particularly profound when you think about how Luke collected these stories for a Roman government official named Theophilus. I almost called him falafel just now. Theophilus. I mean, th this is a representative of the, the true enemy to the Jewish people and to the early Christians. And this is who is receiving these stories. You know, most kingdoms spread by subduing or destroying your enemies. If your kingdom is going to spread, you have to take down those who are going to be in your way. That's how every kingdom, every nation in the history of the world has established itself. Jesus means for his kingdom to come and to spread when his followers love their enemies. That's what he means for it to do. That was the point of the Sermon on the Plain. And if you keep it in mind, each of Jesus' teachings about discipleship can be seen in their proper light. I think this is the key that unlocks the gospel of Luke. And I think the expert in the law who is asking Jesus, I've been listening to what you're saying, so who really is my neighbor? That's what he's wondering. 
okay, you agree with what our scriptures say is the, the big main thing. Love God with your whole self and love your, love your neighbor as yourself. But who really is my neighbor? It's interesting to me that he doesn't ask any questions about, so how do I love God with my whole self? I think the implication is he thinks that he's got that one figured out, which is remarkable to me. But anyway, he thinks he's got that figured out. Jesus has said all this stuff about loving one's enemies, and, and, and I just want to be sure I've been hearing you right. Who's my neighbor? Who really is it? Oh, oh, a story about a Samaritan caring for a beaten and dying Jew, sacrificing significant time and money. Let there be no confusion here. For Jesus, the word enemy and the word neighbor are nearly synonymous because we do not love our neighbor as ourselves. We expect things from them that they cannot give to us and they expect things from us that we cannot give to them. And ultimately, at the core of each of us, the people living in your house and the people living next door, they are your enemies. Happy Sunday everyone. We cannot take lightly the needs that come to our attention. The people whose lives our lives intersect. We've been thinking in recent weeks about the fact that each person that you meet in this big wild world, it is a miracle that you met them. It is a miracle. The person whose path your path crosses, the people that our students got to meet downtown. I mean, listen, Rufus is a part of our kids' lives forever. It is a miracle that they got to meet Rufus. A miracle. I was there. I watched him call Brady over and remind Brady that they had interacted two years ago. Rufus remembered Brady. What a beautiful thing. The moment when we meet someone is holy ground. The moment when we discover someone's need, it is a holy opportunity. It is a crack in this broken world that can show the glory of God. And it, it does it better than any other place. If I do not meet this need, what will happen to my neighbor? What will happen? In the next scene, Jesus travels on, and the, it actually takes place quite a ways away from the one scene. He travels on to the town of Bethany, where Mary and Martha and, you know, their brother Lazarus live. He's not in this story. It's just outside Jerusalem. In fact, if we know that Jesus is making his way from Galilee to Jerusalem, and Luke's going to kind of track with the journey, this story is out of place. He shouldn't arrive to Mary and Martha's house yet, but Luke chops that story out, I think, from later in, you know, in the chronology of the events and puts it right next to this story about loving our neighbor on purpose. Why? Because the question was, what must I do to eternal, inherit eternal life? The answer was, love God with your whole self. Love your neighbor as yourself. He's explained, love your neighbor. And now we're going to spend some time talking about love God who is the God I'm to love with my whole heart soul strength and mind 
the philosopher James K.A. Smith wrote a fantastic book called You Are What You Love. You know, uh, uh, that, that's the idea. You are what you love. You become that which you contemplate. You become more like it. You start to reflect in and of yourself the glory or the terror of the thing that you focus your attention on. In John 17, Jesus prayed that his followers would be as united to him as he is to the Father. The glory you gave to me, I've given to them that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me. Jesus had this idea that if we are connected and focused on God, we become so deeply integrated with him that the lines begin to blur. I in them and you and me. Let me cut to the point. It is completely impossible to love our neighbor as we love ourselves while we still need our neighbor to give us what we can only get from God. If you are expecting things from your neighbor, from your spouse, from someone in your house, from your kids, from, from literally your next door neighbor or your boss or or a friend, if you are expecting something from them that you can only get from God, you will forever be frustrated in that relationship. I've discovered that Henry Nouwen in multiple places, in multiple books, in different speeches and essays, is urging any of his listeners, he became quite famous in his day, and he's urging any of his readers, any of his listeners, the only way to love in the way that I'm encouraging you to love. Henry Nouwen lived in a community of, of adults uh, suffering from all sorts of uh, disabilities, mental developmental disabilities, and the, he, he was challenging us to the, that same sort of self-giving love, and the only way to do it, he said again and again, is by pulling away in solitude so that we could listen to the voice of the one who calls us the beloved. He says, to pray is to let that voice speak to the center of our being and permeate our whole life. Who am I? I am the beloved. Mary sat at Jesus' feet receiving from him. She did not love Jesus by doing things for him. That's not the call. She loved Jesus by being with him. This is what allows us, according to Nowen, to enter into community. This is what allows us to actually love our neighbor. If we do not know we are the beloved sons and daughters of God, he says, we are going to expect someone in the community to make us feel that we are. From this place, the only question I can ever ask is, what will happen to me if I do not stop to, or if I stop to help? That's what we're always asking if we don't spend time at Jesus' feet. Isn't it interesting the way Luke paired these stories together? The one asks, who is my neighbor? And we hear about enemies. And then we see this story where Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. And the implied question is, who is God? And there she is. Being with him. If I have not sat at his feet, I will never love my neighbor let alone my enemy. Martha is not wrong to want to serve. She's not wrong. She's wrong that thinking serving Jesus takes precedent over being with him. 
over being served by him. Jesus comes to serve. I, I don't know if any of you caught it, but this week, you know, live streamed the, over the, uh, you know, I, I don't know why I just said over the whole internet. That's how the internet works. Uh, you could go to the interweb and access the, the live stream of Tim Keller's memorial service. In fact, it's still on YouTube. And I, I watched some of it this week. It was wonderful to see it. Great collection of hymns. I would just encourage you to see it. It's a, it's a fairly formal service. But, but in the homily, as one of Tim Keller's friends talked about Tim's relationship with Jesus, it was incredibly clear. Tim Keller, who was this profound leader in New York City and uh, really sparked a national and international movement of church planting, he was able to serve in all of the ways that he did, in such Christ-like ways, because he allowed Christ to serve him. Like, like Mary. You know, the early generations of believers, uh, early teachers of the church, people, names you might recognize, guys like Origen in the 200s and, and Augustine in the late 300s, they read this story of the Good Samaritan differently than many of the rest of us do. Um, you know, they, they read it as an allegory. They saw every detail of it was tied to a deeper meaning. And usually I would caution you from reading the stories that way. I don't think that's always the best way to interpret scripture, looking for all these layers of meaning in every detail. But when I saw what Origen and Augustine said about the Good Samaritan, I was so stirred that I, I can't keep it from you. You see, here's this man. He's an unnamed man, and he's on a journey downward. Jerusalem is up on top of the mountain. It represents Mount Zion. It represents heaven on earth. And he starts in Jerusalem, and he makes his way, and he goes down, 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 down the hill to the worldly city, to Jericho, the, the city of sin, the, the, the place that's destroyed, you know, by the Israelites in the Exodus. They march around it, and they, and they shout, and the walls fall down. The ancient leaders saw this man, this unnamed man, as you and me, every man, falling from grace. They see that this is Adam taking the fruit and all of us with him, leaving Eden to make his own way. And they saw in the robbers the world, the flesh, the devil coming, the demonic attacks that render us broken and helpless, unable to save ourselves. The man journeyed to the way of sin and having chosen sin, he becomes a victim of sin. Sin is a responsible guilt, and it's an enslaving, destroying power. And the early teachers, they saw in the priest and the Levite, they saw the law of Moses and the prophets. They saw the, the law that's offered to people, you know, that, that passes them by. But we are broken, and we cannot get up and follow them to safety. They only show us how dead and desperate we are. If only we would follow them and be restored, but we cannot. We cannot love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Instead, we are left for dead, and they pass us by. So for Augustine and Origen, and actually many others, there's many who read it like this. Who is the Samaritan? Who is he? 
The answer is painfully obvious to them. Who else would make himself vulnerable to the man? Who else would go out of his way to take him to the end? Would sacrificially pay the price to heal his wounds? And their reading, of course, the Samaritan is Jesus himself. Just as he serves Mary in the next story, he is serving the, the, the broken man in this one. And they even saw the end that, the, you know, they, the Samaritan takes this man to the end. They saw the end as you, the body of Christ, to whom Jesus delivers the broken soul and says, I will pay whatever it takes for you to heal this man. And I'm coming back to check on him. What a privilege and duty we have. Did you notice the strange way Jesus asks the expert about the moral of the story. He doesn't say, so you asked who's my neighbor and what does this tell you? What does this tell you about who your neighbor is? He doesn't ask that. He says, who became a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The man asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus asked, who is the victim's neighbor? You're the victim. And this man, when his wounds are healed, how do you imagine he will respond when he sees a stranger in need? He could not become a loving neighbor until he was loved by the true and better neighbor, Jesus. Just as Mary could not serve until she was served by Jesus, just as you and I cannot love until we are loved by Jesus. And then we're free, friends. We are compelled to love our neighbor as Jesus has loved you, he has bandaged your wounds, he's brought you to the end. What will happen to your neighbor if you don't do the same? At the beginning of this service, uh, we prayed in the prayers of the people that we would be the, the body of Jesus. See, and I've been told that it's a little weird when we pray that, that his love would go into our sinews. Is that a weird word for you? Sinews, well, that helps you remember it. Let, let every fiber of our being be an extension of who you are. Friends, as we receive the love of Jesus, our call is to then become an extension of the Good Samaritan in our community. You may have noticed I've rearranged up here a little bit. This is the body that usually lives in the back of the room and somewhere in the service generally someone encourages you to take the little slip of paper on the bottom of your bulletin or there's blank note cards scattered around and to write your name on the front and the name of someone that you can become a neighbor to this week on the back. You're going to come up in just a moment and receive the free gift of Jesus life and death and resurrection for you, the new covenant, you're going to come and receive that. Now, you don't pay for this meal. You don't have to trade anything. You don't have to bring anything with you. But perhaps you would write someone's name. I think there's pens scattered around the room too. Perhaps you would write someone's name, and symbolically you can bring their name forward and bring them to the table, just as you would get to do this week. We have an elder meeting after the service, and I've already written into the elder agenda. We are going to pray for every name that gets put in this box today. Put your name on the front, their name on the back, and you know what? We'll connect with you and find out how it went. Don't be scared. We want to know 
how the love of God is extending out through this church. And we can only do that when we have received the love of Christ first. I know we've gone a little bit long today. It was worth it to hear the students, but let's pray together. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. We come to the feet of Jesus at this moment. We've chosen the better part. Lord, here we are. Here we are at your feet. Lord, would you pour out your love? Would you serve your people as we come to the table? Thank you that you literally serve us, your body and your blood. And as we receive, Lord, as we hear you speak to us that we are the beloved, help us to then go out and share your love freely with our community. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, on the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread, and we, when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Every time we eat this bread or drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I would encourage you to come to receive the free gift of Christ given to you and symbolically bring your neighbor with you. Bring them to the end. And we'll see what he does. Let's worship as we come.